Welcome to the Mentality Podcast, where we have real conversations with real people about healthy masculinities. I'm your host, Lao Chokan, and throughout this podcast, we'll hear from a wide range of guests about the views and experiences of manhood. We'll look at the bits we should celebrate, but also its messy parts, while having a bit of a laugh. Hi guys, and welcome back to Mentality Podcast. I hope you've been keeping well. The sun is shining here in southeast London, and I hope it does where you're listening from. I have to say you in for a treat today as we're going to speak about education and young boys with Emmanuel Awayelo, alias Money, who is assistant head teacher and special education needs coordinator at a school in East London and director of the Reach Out Project, a mentoring program for young boys disengaged with schools. Hi Money, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Lau? Thanks for coming, Manny, and it's great to have you on the pod. And the timing of this episode is quite right because you're approaching exams period and uh, doing a bit of research ahead of this episode. I came across a few articles that were kind of pushing that uh, classic comparison between young boys and young girls, you know, at uh, at GCSEs and A-levels and uh, given your experience in education as assistant head teacher would be great to just uh, get your perspective on it but also to understand better the dynamic between education young boys and what can we do to support uh, for them to perform better mm, yeah no thank you for having me man preparing for this moment for quite yeah. a while now but it's, it's good to actually uh, finally be able to talk about this so yeah just looking forward to it man absolutely and let's kick off the conversation with the GCSE and A-level results I was wondering from your perspective as a teacher and working with young boys what insights can you share about that yeah no, that's a good question um, I think overall when you look at the underperformance of boys um, in schools, I think, first of all, you kind of have to be, we have to be careful in that when we lump boys all together and girls all together, we kind of miss um, key data that highlights, you know, that this isn't necessarily consistent between every racial group. But I guess if you looked at it overall, you could say that, you know, girls have been performing consistently for the last decade better than boys. Uh, when it comes to the actual performance of boys, you know, I think, you know, just from my experience of teaching, especially young boys, but there are many other things that contribute to the performance of the individual as well as certain groups um, so I can't lump everybody on I think just looking at it from a holistic point of the shaping of the curriculum and just kind of like the, the lack of male presence within education particularly in England anyway and early years I think that would have a key part to play in some of the progress that we see with boys. Absolutely I couldn't agree more money I think it's really important to look at the, at the data in more granular level and understand what is the conversation, what's happening around different subgroups and how they perform, and I just uh, lump boys together. But also the importance of uh, of males in the classroom, of teachers uh, and positive male role models, I believe is so important. And kind of this leads to my next question that you're quite in a quite senior teaching position. So I'm wondering how boys relate to you and how they respond to you when they see you in school and in class. Again, another good question. You know, these things are very hard to measure. You only judge it based on your interactions with these young people, the relationships you build. And I guess to some degree, you measure it based on, you know, did they do well by the time they left your classroom academically? Um, and there's so many things you kind of look out for when you're trying to assess, you know, the impact of yourself, the impact of a male in the classroom. One thing I will say that I think affects all young people is representation matters for a plethora of reasons. And it's important for young people to see me as a black man in the classroom, boys in particular, not just for the 
young black boys, but I always say this, but also for all the other ethnic groups. Um, and the reason why I say that is because there is a particular stigma and perception that surrounds black male, and especially those from, from London. And so I know that there are stereotypes and there's prejudices that exist um, and daily you have to kind of break that down. And so one of the things that I enjoy doing is breaking those stereotypes down about race, about identity, but also about masculinity and what it means to be a man. And I think for many of the boys that I teach, many of them haven't been raised in homes where if there was a male figure, the male figure was a teacher or a role model. And I do think it's quite important that as parents, we see ourselves as teachers and many of our young boys haven't seen that. So, you know, when they haven't seen that and then they walk into a very female dominated sector, I think seeing a man full stop is quite a shock to a few of them. But if they see it from a very young age, it's a lot easier to kind of get them engaged and I think it's, it's for me it's like it's important to just normalize it um, at the end of the day I am a man I am gentle I am kind I am forgiving I am patient and these are all qualities that should with every male that they meet and unfortunately they don't see that and then there's also another layer of that which is that I'm not just a man I'm also a black man and so for the white child or for the Asian child whatever stigma or prejudice that they might, might come into school with you know every day I break that down when I show them that actually I am not the guy that you see on TV of black male I am just a normal regular father husband um, and I'm your teacher the importance of a male in the classroom I think is key even if it's just the one time in their whole school experience because there are many things as a man that you can teach a child or teach a boy and what you don't hear often then is you know their their role models being uh, their teachers and sometimes sadly enough it's not their fathers who it should be first and foremost so I know that when I walk into the classroom for many of them I am kind of that father figure I'm that big brother figure and so I think for that reason it's quite important for me to kind of hold my head high that actually being a man in the room you're making a difference sometimes by just standing there because it's something that they don't necessarily see and so although you can't measure this at the end of the year I know it plays a big part in, in shaping their perception of what a man should be, but also breaking down any stereotypes or prejudice that they might have around around myself, but even just a, a particular group of people. So, yeah. Yes, I couldn't agree more, especially when it comes to representation. It's so, so important. And if I can bring my experience as, uh, as a mentor, and uh, last year when I finished my mentoring program, I gave my mentee, who's uh, who's from a black British background, a book uh, as as a gift, and it was the book from Governor B. Unspoken. And on the cover of the book, there's uh, Governor's B. Portrait. And when I gave the book to to my mentee, his eyes absolutely lit up when he saw the picture of of a black man on the cover. So that for me just brought it home that representation is absolutely so vital. The second point when it comes to the presence of male teachers in schools, I believe uh, in England especially we can do a bit better. So I just look up the data from OECD and in 2019 the latest data showed that um, in England only 14% of teachers were male at primary level and at the same year in Denmark there was more than double of male teachers around 32 percent 
yes, we need more male teachers in schools. The proportion of teachers needs to be more gender balanced, but diversity needs to be factored in when we do that. 100%. And I think one thing you find as well is um, the height that the older the, the students get, the more likely they are to see male representation um, in the classroom, like in secondary, you know, the numbers I imagine are quite, uh, maybe not quite high, but like significantly higher than, than what you would get in primary. And even in further education, you do have, you know, a fair amount of men. But by that point, you know, perceptions have been shaped, the engagement might have already been lost at that point and things that they might genuinely have an interest in or that they want to pursue that they want to do you know a lot of that might have been drummed out of them but then on top of that they also don't have the people that can help them and support them in that sense and that's why I liked what you said before you said there needs to be a balance and so I think just like um, at home there needs to kind of be a balance in school and we don't have that balance so unfortunately you know the understanding of the male experience what you're going to be up against, having someone that shares that same interest in you, just those small day-to-day interactions that sometimes completely just disengage a child and obviously we're talking very general but I think when you look at the data like you said there's a trend and obviously before you start looking at kind of like biological explanations you might want to look at well what is the makeup of the classroom what's the makeup of the actual schools that we have you know what are we teaching our boys and what are we not teaching our boys before you come to a conclusion as to why why it looks like that. Absolutely, I believe that the nurturing element is much more important to look at than biology. However, just to play a bit of devil's advocate, I'm just thinking that, of course, there might be female teachers in the classroom who have a preference for football or cars or might be perceived stereotypically being a male uh, topic and they can relate and have discussions conversations with boys and just engage with that but at the same time I believe that the male presence in the classroom is still important it shouldn't be just taken out of it and not to be available and also I was just wondering in terms of like how do you feel that boys or your students relate to you differently because you're a male teacher how they respond to that yeah, I mean, the reality of it is, is you know, again, when you lump in boys, you, you, you take away the fact that actually even within that group of boys, they are all individual, different learning styles, different attitude to learning, you know, all these different variants that play a part in the progress then that, that they're going to make the attainment, they're going to make the engagement that they're going to have. So, you know, I have my teaching style, but my teaching style is very flexible and fluid. You know, if I was to sum it up to be creative and to be adaptable, but that that would work for boys, girls, regardless of their background, regardless of their experience. I think if you're then being very specific, you know, there's a term that we use in education. It's a buzzword at the moment, you know, but it's a child-centered or pupil-centered approach to learning. Um, and I very much believe in that. Unfortunately, not everybody can do this when you've got 30 children in the classroom, but it is the way that education should be. And it's the way that I like to take my classes. I'm also aware of the different learning styles within the classroom. And we all learn differently, every single individual. If there's anything else I would add to that, and this doesn't, this isn't easy. So it's not something I say every teacher can do, but you have to build relationships with, with your students. That's particularly those who have been disengaged from education. They're even harder because there's something that we call a barrier to learning. A child could be fantastic. It could be bright in the academic sense. But if he's had a poor experience of education and hasn't been in school for a year, when he comes into a new school, for instance, or when he comes across a teacher, he's not just going to open up his mind, open up his mouth to talk about.
about, you know, what you want to talk about. He's got a perception of education, of teachers, of adults. You kind of got to break that down. And the only way you can do that is to build a relationship. And so depending on if you go to a private school, you know, more often than not, a lot of those difficult behaviours that you see or the barriers to learning, they might not exist. So then you don't have to develop a relationship. You teach the child regardless whether they want to learn it or not. And then everyone leaves. And then you get to a situation like mine where I teach children who are in care, who have been sexually or physically abused, you know, who that morning may not have had breakfast. So I couldn't give a monkeys about what you're about to teach today. All I'm thinking about is toast. And you've got to be aware of those things. So I think certainly for me, the best thing I've, I've been able to do is, is teach in, a, in an alternative provision with children with special educational needs because it's opened up my minds to the different barriers to learning that exist. And it's changed my approach on what education should be. And it isn't just about English, maths and science. It's, it's, it's about developing the whole being and, and really kind of getting children to the point where they can have an understanding about what they want to do with their future. Success is really just doing what you love. I really like the point you made about context because it's so important. As you said, if the child didn't have, you know, breakfast this morning, all he can think of is like, I just need some 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 toast uh, today. Or if there was an argument on the way to school with uh, with their parents, then how that can affect uh, their behavior in class. All these elements can can influence uh, their behavior, even if the child is bright. And this takes me back to my uh, mentoring experience. And while I was preparing my mentoring sessions uh, for my mentee, I remember that there were numerous occasions when I put a plan together, but then was going most of the time off the window because my mentee was in a different uh, mind space and he was his needs were different and he just needed maybe to that moment he just wanted to play instead of maybe start reading a book. And I realized like, how can I maybe play with him a bit, release some energy and then let's sit down and read uh, read the book. It's a bit different in your case. Nevertheless, context is so important. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I always say to early career teachers um, or, or, or newly qualified teachers, you know, your style is your style. Everyone, no one's the same. You have your style in everything that you do. But when you're, when you're, when it comes to managing children, you have to be prepared to understand rather than wanting to be understood. And you could have a brain full of knowledge about science and history and all this other stuff. Um, and the end goal is to transfer that knowledge from your brain to theirs. But you want to do that in a creative way, in a way that doesn't marginalize any children. That in itself is a success successful environment for growth. Yeah, speaking about growth, I meant to ask you earlier, since you're the special educational needs coordinator at your school, what can you share about children with, you know, special needs, if they are either neurodiverse or have different learning difficulties? How do they challenge you maybe sometimes and how you respond to that? Yeah, it would be great to hear more about it. So, so the school that I taught in, although it was for children who had a primary need of social, emotional, mental health issues, um, we would more often than not kind of come across children who had that as the primary need, learning difficulty or learning disability. And over the years, we've kind of seen a change in the cohort. And so we have children that are recognised as neurodiverse. Teaching children is an opportunity to learn. And so when I come across a child that's neurodiverse now, it's an opportunity to learn about them, but have a bit of an understanding of their particular need or the category that they come under. It's always great for me to learn, you know, and whether a child is autistic or has ADHD or has um, Asperger's, for instance, or has oppositional defiance disorder. All of these things I just see are labels, but there's a child there and the child always has a story. I'm far more invested in understanding the child 
what they like, what makes them tick, what's their triggers. And for different children, that presents differently. But, you know, even those that are identified as neurodiverse, you know, some of my best interactions are with those children because they just simply do not think that everyone <laughs> else does, you know. Yeah. Um, whether it's by taking things literally or whether it's just their way of, like, seeing things. It's like it's not like you. It's fascinating to see. So there's beauty in it. Don't get me wrong. There are days that are highly frustrating. It's not easy saying sit down 10 times in the space of 10 minutes. You know, when you put all of those things aside, you kind of look at it and you think, well, actually, that was an opportunity to learn about the child. So what you might see and um, what you might observe now might be beneficial for the teacher that's teaching them in a year's time, two years time. The end goal really isn't the end of my academic year. It's by the time they leave school, you know, kind of cater for them and their need. Yeah, Mani, thank you for sharing that. That's really insightful. But now I'd like us to go back to the topic of masculinity. And as a male teacher, do you see if boys come to you and raise any questions or ask anything about that, or maybe even girls? And even if there might be various black and white things like boys should be doing that or girls should be doing that, but they might still be aware even from a young age of those issues. So is there anything that you could share about it? I'm quite passionate about using my identity and my experience and my knowledge of being a man and letting that be known to my children, to my students. And the last, this last year, as well as my, my role as Senko, I was also the year six teacher and it was a class of just boys. Um, and so it presented an opportunity to have everyday discussions around the male experience, not necessarily in a very formal way, but just things that they would say or things that they would do or their thought process that, you know, things that would come out loud in the middle of a session or a discussion there was always an opportunity to kind of address something and I guess that's why they were fortunate that they could spew those ideas and they would have a man in the in the classroom they were fortunate actually in the classroom we had about four men at one point which is unheard of you don't really get that they had me as the classroom teacher but then they had two or three teaching assistants and we had a female instructor who was always consistent there and so it always presented an opportunity for us to kind of like address something or correct something and what I did was you know over a period of six weeks we would spend 30 to 40 minutes which was a lesson block to do with the male experience and perceptions of masculinity things you know and there's some things that were very typical and there's some things where it's just like whoa that's what you think you know but one it gave me an opportunity to see where they come from and it gave us an opportunity to discuss some things but it also informed what I might want to talk about over the next couple of weeks as well we looked at role models the concept of role models you know what is a role model to you is this an example of what a role model is no what does it look like does it have to be a man is it a man in your life so it's just kind of delving into all of these discussions you know and you know we kind of touch on very specific topics like fatherhood specifically understanding and appreciating that with there wasn't a single boy in the classroom who had both his mother and his father in his in their life Half of the students in my classroom were in care and those who lived with their mother didn't live with their father. And so appreciating that that would have been quite a sensitive topic, it was still key to understand what is your, you know, um, what's your relationship like? Not necessarily in the, like specific to like, what's your relationship with your father, but you know, but what's your, in your mind, what do you perceive as a good father? And it was interesting because I'm talking about children who are, who have been in care for the last four, five, six years, they see their dad sporadically and their dad is still their role model. They still remember their dad from what they what they remember from the age of four and their dad walking them to school at that age was still what they perceive as what a role model is and what the role of the father is, you know. And then you get some points of view where it's just like, you know, my dad doesn't exist. You know, I saw my dad beating on my mum. He's not a good guy. Shouldn't do that. 
you know, and what I liked about that is it gave them that space to kind of reflect. And in some ways it must have brought some kind of like, maybe not closure, but it brought them an opportunity to kind of address certain issues and thoughts and concerns that generally speaking in, in the six hours that we have of school, they're never going to come out. But when you hear it, you're like, oh, this makes a, this plays a massive part. Now I understand why you talk to women the way that you do. And for many of them, it's like, yeah, a man is at the very top, you know. And for some of them, it's like, actually, no, that's not right because I saw you beating on my mum. So as a result of that, most men can't be trusted. So it's just like you break down these conversations and that can only exist and happen because I brought it to the front. I want to know what your views are of a man, you know, and by the end of the six week period that we have, I want to be able to give you some advice that some of the things you think aren't necessarily true. And these are some of the things that generally speaking, from my point of view and from Sir's point of view, these are the kind of things that you should be looking for in a good male role model. Not some of the things that you said and some of the things you said are right, but maybe as men, should we be doing better in that? It's just an honest conversation between all of us. There's no right or no wrong. I do feel that because of that, I'm able to now confidently kind of say to people, if you have the opportunity to do so, whether it's in form or as an official lesson, or maybe as a program that you buy into, have these discussions with your boys, have these sessions with your boys. They need it because in a, an environment, they will never get to explore some of these toxic views that they have. Um, and how they should and shouldn't be treating people. And that's the reason why in society now we have men that just do what men do, uh, which has put most of the, the people around them in danger. So, yeah. Absolutely spot on money. And that's why it's great to have your insight on these issues because you just tell it how it is. It's great to, to kind of be reminded that we need more positive male role models. And this goes back to a movie, actually, that I've seen last summer once... Uh, things started to open up um, it's called nowhere special and for those who haven't seen the movie it's about a working class dad who looks after his three-year-old uh, son and when the dad finds out that he's in a um, terminal illness he wants to adopt his son to a good family it's great to see how you know there's this caring and loving father looks after his son you know they you know bake cakes together for his uh, 35th birthday and you know they have walks in the parks they play uh, they go for ice cream and all that stuff but also what is great to see how the the son reciprocates that love and uh, care and affection to his dad and it was for example one scene when the dad is quite tired on the sofa and is sleeping and the son comes and just pulls the blanket over his dad and one particular conversation stood out uh, for me uh, was when the dad kind of tells the young the young boy that, you know, when I was growing up in foster care, all my friends were kind of, you know, enforcing this kind of strict way of being a man, like don't show any emotions, otherwise they, he knew that would just like, they will decimate him. But it's great also to see how the character evolved to this state when he's he became a caring and loving father. And last and not least, my point would be that the reason I actually set up this platform and this podcast to discuss about issues around masculinity and there are multiple ways of being a man and we need to have a conversation and we can't just go, you know, following the old code that, you know, we don't do emotions and there's only one way of being a man because it's absolutely not. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. I think um, we're at a point now where we have to be very intentional with like the conversations we have with young young boys. I think if we take it for granted that they're just going to understand and find their way, you know, the current epidemic that we have of young boys walking on the streets and stabbing each other to death. It's just that we as a society, we don't understand the reasons why they're doing it. And we're not prepared to take that responsibility of saying, let's grab our young men from when they're young boys and let's deposit love and nurture and guidance, irrespective of whether they've got a father at home. But if they've got a father at home, the statistics there will show you that a family that's got both mother and father at home, the outcomes for that young child are far greater than it is, especially if it's a single parent family who are working class. You know, the the disadvantages against people 100% play a factor in the decisions that they make when they're older, but it doesn't make it all right. And where many of us have grown up in in poverty or or working class or from humble beginnings, let's say, not everybody experiences the same same things. So it tells you that there is something that can be done. I was caught at a point, but I engaged in many of the things that many of my friends are in prison for now. It's just by the skin of my teeth. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, it was just God. It was divine intervention, but it shouldn't be so close. I'm a man with talent, with with potential, I'm bright, but none of those things played a part in anything I did up until a certain point because regardless of my potential, my talent, my strength, I still left school not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And I was at a point in my life where it's like, I'm not trying to get into prison, but this just seems like the only thing that's kind of going on right now. My friends are doing this. It's the same group of friends I've been with all my life. I'm not seeing them acing their their results or flying to Cambridge or doing, you know, so your environment does play a part in that. And that's someone that came from a background where my parents valued education. They were very strict, very disciplined, and I had both parents at home. And still, yeah, I could easily have been in prison for making that decision with my friends who three or four years later still make that decision and they're in prison. So it's like, I don't ever look at myself as a success story. I just, I always look at myself and think to myself, the margins should never be that fine. It should never be that because for every one person that kind of makes it out per se, like I did, and none of us there really had each other to, to hold it accountable. We didn't really have the teachers or the mentors or the role models around us in general, in society to tell us what you guys are doing. It's not beneficial for your life. It's not beneficial for your family. So I value that more than anything else as a teacher, that what you can teach young people from a very young age and surround them with is vital. That might stick with them for life. And if you don't have that, then that's why in society now you see a lot of men who are vulnerable, who commit crimes with no sense of responsibility for their family, no accountability, you know, having children left, right and centre with no intention of looking after them. So repeating the cycle, we're in a bad place. Um, And it's not just in the UK. That is something that's common across the world from wealthy to not wealthy. It's just, it's a male issue that we really have to get down to the bottom of. I really appreciate your vulnerability and just opening up and sharing how you actually overcome some of the challenges life uh, dealt you with. Also agree with what you mentioned about the circumstances for young boys are much more complex than sometimes the media portrays them. And what we need on the streets, definitely mentors, more teachers like you and more youth clubs where where young men can have good and positive distractions, the the solution, again, is much more complex as the problem. But the reason I believe that mentors, good teachers are so important because then young boys can discuss their problems, they can open up, build relationships, and then teachers can point them to a different way. As you just mentioned, 
they can show an alternative sometimes for young boys who come from less privileged backgrounds it's harder to see there's a different way and just because they can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist why we need mentors why we need social clubs why we need youth clubs for young boys to thrive is because we think that all the nurture and care should be received in the family but i start to see things differently that as the the beautiful African proverb says, you need a village to raise a child. And that's why we need to see what are the societal structures that enables us in London to have that kind of village, so-called village, to support, which is the school, the youth club, the mentors and the family to raise a healthy young man or healthy young woman, to create these social environments where, as you just mentioned, to pump care, love, nurture into young boys and young girls to dream big and just break the cycle sometimes families find themselves in. And one last thing that I would like to add before we pause our conversation is to say I like that we need to take ownership as men. So it's our problem. We need to discuss it. We need to discuss what is toxic about masculinity and how can we be better men at the end of the day. And I know this might look different. What this better version of ourselves might look different from context to context, culture to culture and community to community. But it's important for us to start to see there's a problem and then slowly but surely work because we can be not healthy to ourselves because we commit suicide and because we don't engage our emotions but also we can we can be unhealthy to those around us thanks for tuning in today to the first part of our conversation with money about education and young boys until next time don't forget to check out the social media pages in the caption of this episode where I've also included the link to the blog post about Nowhere Special and the details of Money's Reach Out project. So stay safe, stay tuned, and see you next time.